give thanks for the grateful heart. Pause with me, please. Our Father, we are indeed grateful to you, and we pause to simply say thank you. Yea, Lord, and this, that, those few words seem so inadequate, and yet we are lost for words. And even in that, Lord, you have gone ahead and provided a means for us to express the depth of our gratitude by giving us your Holy Spirit, who is able to communicate to you just how we feel in language that is unique to you. Thank you for this opportunity for us, your children, to be gathered together and to once again marvel at your grace, your sovereignty, your supremacy. So we ask your presence here with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been asked to speak loud by someone, long as they bring the cold slaw with a little bit of pepper on it. I heard that this morning. A bulletin says that God is sovereign. He is supreme. In Colossians is where you will find the thrust of my sharing with you this evening. Colossians 1.16 says, By him everything was created in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Question. Do you agree? Do you accept this truth? Everything that God does or permits, he does or permits for a reason. Do you agree? Even disobedience? That is the question. I wish to share with you this evening something that has fascinated me and held me captive for the past four months or so, and that is simply this, the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that God the Father is all about showcasing, glorifying His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this evening I want you to join me in seeing the glory of Jesus Christ in everything. And I literally mean everything. See the glory of Jesus Christ in everything. Now that might be difficult for you when you might find yourself in a difficult place. But I want to remind you, I believe you agree that God is supreme, and God is sovereign. About two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, there was a boy at school who accidentally had his thumb caught in a door. Feel the pain. Another boy on the outside did not know that this other boy had his thumb on the inside, hinge side of the door. The boy on the outside playing slammed the door. I mean, the bolts went into the 
whatever that thing is, the bogey of the socket. <laughs> you know, and so this boy's thumb was on the other end. Do you think he screamed? I think so. The boy outside thought the boy was just trying to get out, so he ignored it. He walked away. Another boy was there holding the door so that he could not open the door. In the meantime, this boy's thumb, at least the first joint, was caught in the door. Eventually, when the second boy moved away from the door, the boy was able to, with his left hand, reach around, open the door, and push it open. When he did that, all of the tissue on the first joint of his thumb fell to the floor. He came out screaming. By the time it was gotten to my attention, there was just this white skeleton of the bone on his thumb. He had an incredible tolerance for pain, or maybe he was in shock, but he wasn't crying at this time. Here's a question. Who was responsible? Should I, by the way, have accused the parent of the boy who slammed the door shut? Uh, how much does it cost for a joint on a thumb? Is somebody responsible? Is somebody going to pay? Does it have a dollar value? Who is ultimately responsible? Here's the question. Do you think God knew that that was going to happen before it happened? Do you think God was a little bit cruel, unconcerned? Couldn't he have stopped it? Isn't he supreme? Isn't he sovereign? How about this? Would you lend your preteen age child your car? Well, let's put it this way. Y'all are so tight, you know, buddy, buddy. They don't have to ask if they wanted to use your car. So this particular evening, your child, your preteen child, took the keys because they have watched you sufficiently that they know what the routine is. Went to your vehicle, opened it, sat in the seat, could hardly see you over the dashboard, and that doesn't matter. Put the key in the ignition, started the vehicle, reversed if you weren't facing the road, went out on the street, and they did good. They got on the street, went down the road, but crashed into another vehicle. Police is called. Question, who is responsible? Would you, as a parent, would you allow the police to take your child away? As a matter of fact, would the police actually take your child away? Or would they ask the child, who is your, or who are your parents? If they called you as a parent, would you determine or you tell the police, look, I didn't tell the child to move the car. Whatever the law says, suck it to him <laughs> or her. Or would you be inclined to say, look, would you accept that it was your responsibility? What does the law say? Is it your responsibility? The answer is probably going to be yes. According to the law, they will say this child is a mini minor. This is a minor. Until this child reaches a certain age, you are responsible. You could say, you can argue, I was asleep. I didn't even know. I don't know all things. I'm not omniscient. The police doesn't care. The law doesn't care about that. You are ultimately responsible. Let me ask you then. Since 
you and I, as God's children, when we do something, who is ultimately responsible? Is it you or is it God? Take that. Could we blame God? Or is there something where we are also responsible? There's something called antinomy, which means there are two parts, for example, where you and I as human also have a responsibility, but God is still sovereign. God sometimes uses our stupidity or our disobedience still to showcase his glory. And his star person to receive that glory is Jesus Christ. I am convinced that Jesus Christ is the most important person in the universe. He is indeed supreme. All things, as we read earlier, all things, no exception, were made for him, evil included. In other words, all things were made to cause the glory of Christ to sparkle, to gleam, to twinkle more brightly. This permission, Will, is like akin or analogous to a secondary causing. If you take your child into a china shop, walking through looking at the fine china, and the child accidentally breaks something, who is responsible? Again, you can row the child as much as you wish. You can pinch him as much as you wish. According to the store owner, the manager, they say, saying, somebody going to pay for this? The child is unemployed unless you were engaged in child labor. That's another story. But somebody has to pay for this. You as the parent, the Lord says you're responsible. Here's the question. You remember in Mark, for example, Mark chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, I want you to see the glory here. There are some things God will direct specifically in terms of his will. He specifically says certain things, and this will happen, no doubt. God also, and I call it like a secondary kind of permission, where God allows certain things to happen. Now let me ask you, do you think God is ever surprised? You think we could sneak up on God and surprise him? Let me give you the clue. No way. But remember this in Mark chapter 5, verse 12 through 13. I want you to see the glory here. Do you remember these persons were, there's this man who had these demons in him. And the demons begged. They begged him saying, send us into the hogs, I mean the pigs. That's not that junk in the groups, right? <laughs> Send us to the pigs. Let us enter into them. Now, these demons ask, they beg, did they get permission? Right? They got permission, having known or not that they were going to be driven out of this one man, they asked permission to go into the pigs. Now, the people who own the pigs, um, anybody ever considered their protests? About 2,000 of them? Their pigs, I thought they had, that was their livestock, their means of income. These demons entered into the pigs, and the pigs gone crazy, run over the cliff, 
jump into the sea, know they couldn't swim that well, drown, all dead. Here's a question. Who's responsible? Who did these people who own the pigs, who did they go to to protest? The car, they said, something happened. I saw a man over there with a group of little, another group of men, and I'm told, based on Facebook, that that was Jesus. And as a result, he pointed in this direction, and I don't know what happened, because I couldn't see the demons, you know, they, but something happened to my animals. They all, in one accord, rushed over the edge of the cliff into the sea. That's it. I, I, somebody got it. Somebody straightened me today. So says the owners of these things. Who is responsible? I want you to see, though, that permission was given by God. In this case, Jesus Christ himself. Now, in Mark chapter 13, it says, So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. They got permission to do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7, I want you again to see the glory. By the way, just thinking about the demons, the evil spirits entering the pigs, what do you see about Jesus there? Anything that impresses you about Jesus? The glory, his glory, his power, that even demons have to obey him? Does that not make Jesus look, this is awesome. Even demons respond to him. Even they have to have permission. They couldn't just wander where, because Jesus could have given them directive to go anywhere. That speaks again, see the glory of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7. I want you to see the glory here. And this is what it says, in effect. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. Paul speaking, coming to visit. I hope to spend some time with you. If the Lord permits. So, I think we can draw the conclusion that the Lord permits certain things. We would like to come and visit with you. Sometimes we say it another way. I will see you tomorrow. I will come to see you, Lord willing. Again, because if the Lord does not will something to happen, it will not happen. And sometimes God just permits it to happen. I call it again a secondary kind of willing something to happen. Just to prove the point. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, I want you again to see the glory in the midst of this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. Again, notice if God permits. So, this sovereign God, this supreme being who we worship, who we sang about this evening, who we heard about in our Brother Rex's uh, brief uh, chat with us earlier, who we heard about in this morning's message by Brother Chris. This sovereign God permits certain things, but for one purpose, so that his glory might be seen. I have this 
overwhelming conviction that God is about simply glorifying his son. And you will see that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I get this impression that God is very pleased with his son. His son is very special to him. Do you remember Jesus even saying that he came so that he can glorify his father? And yet the father wants to glorify the son. Isn't that cool? Each doing for the other with no competition. But hey, I am out just to make you look good. Then there's an opportunity where God sometimes speaks directly. And his will is expressly mentioned. In Genesis, in the familiar story that you know quite well with Joseph. In Genesis chapter 45, verse 7, again, I want you to see God's glory in this. In verse 7 it says, And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now you remember the scenario with Joseph being sold into slavery. Tell me, where do you see the glory of God and Joseph being sold into slavery? If you only consider what we call the bad ways and the mistreatment of his brothers, then you'll miss the glory of God. Because God is looking years down the road so that the people, the children of Israel, might be saved, won't die off the earth because of starvation. But you don't see that. But here's what it says specifically again. And God sent me. Now, God sent me, Joseph speaking, sent me before you, as he was now talking to his brothers, to preserve for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Only somebody who is supreme, who is sovereign, could do that kind of advanced planning. But when we are in the midst, we don't even see that. All we're looking at is something in the immediate. And Brother Chris Burner, I think, brought that out beautifully in a lot of um, pictorial form, object lessons this morning. But God sometimes directs some specific, his will, specifically in different circumstances. In Exodus chapter 4, here's another one. Verse 21, I want you again to please see the glory. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, and that you do before Pharaoh all of the miracles that I have put in your power. But here's what here's, here's the clincher. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Isn't that something wrong with that? Or is it something right? You telling Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses is obedient, going back and forth telling Pharaoh. The Lord says, let my people go. In the meantime, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart so he does not let the people go. So if Pharaoh even wanted to, he couldn't. What is God doing? What is God up to? He's trying to confuse me. Cause me to have gray hair. But Moses followed or obeyed his directive. What we read later is that God hardened his heart. For what purpose? Do you see the glory? When the plagues came, did you see any glory? Did you see something? Did you learn something about God that you may not have noticed before? Had not the plagues taken place? Did you see anything special? Do you think in the minds of the children of Israel, do you think that was an opportunity for them to see God in another way that they hitherto had not even thought of? And so God is creating this powerful object, visual display of his power. 
What about the children, um, the Egyptians themselves? They had their gods. They thought that their gods were powerful. So gods are let to be have a showdown. Oh, and they were working for a while. They thought, we got this. You know, you could turn this and we'll turn ours. We call our people, you call yours. But ultimately, do you see the glory of God here in the midst of these events? God's direct will. God directly hardened Pharaoh's heart. In Psalms, as a matter of fact, in Psalm 105, verse 25, it says, He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He turned, he referenced to God, turned their hearts to hate his people. So God made the Egyptians to hate the children of Israel. Ah, now that God, you just give me some more details. Why you do that? Why did you do that? So that they can deal craftily, wickedly, evilly with your servants. God is up to something. But I want you to remember, God is still sovereign. He is supreme. We have to understand that. And don't forget, even when we are in the midst of difficult situations, what about calamities? Ezekiel, I find this intriguing. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 17 says this, and again, please, if you can, see the glory in this. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 17. I will send famine and wild beasts against you. This is God talking. I wonder what that will sound like if I was talking about the Bahamas today. I will send. We can fill in any calamity. But Ezekiel 5.17, through the text, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Oh, that seems harsh, doesn't it? Can you see any glory in that? If we say all things were made by or Christ, how could God in this kind of scenario, in this calamitous situation, how could, how could you begin to see any glory in this? Amos 8.11, see the glory. See the glory. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of the hearing the words of the Lord. I believe that is applicable even here in the Bahamas today. People are here, and yet they act as if they've never heard. Because their behavior doesn't show any resemblance to the word of God being heard. But here's the question. We talk about the crime. We talk about this surge in terms of an alternate lifestyle that is raising its head and have raised more than probably the head, shoulder, almost to stand upright in our country today. God is still supreme. He is still sovereign. 
We know what scripture says. We know what God says about this. Why couldn't it start today? That effective immediately. None of this will be an issue tomorrow when we wake up. Question. If God is all powerful, and he is. He is supreme, and he is. He is sovereign. He is his own supreme court. You can't appeal to anyone beyond him. Why is it that God don't stop this, this instant? Because it is an affront to his directive to us and how we should interact one with another, particularly in relationships as male and female, husband and wife. Do you see the glory in this? How can God use that to showcase his glory towards us? I ask in the opening comment from the little bulletin descriptor that God even used evil to showcase his glory. Not that he himself create or cause evil, but I told you at the beginning in terms of allowing, because there is still a responsibility that we have as humans. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Let me stop. Do you, just the sound of that, do you think that's true? Do you think God has ever made anything that had no purpose? I think not. God does not waste time or resources. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even, it's the rest of the verse, even the wicked were made for a purpose. Yes, their purpose. For the day of trouble. Wow. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. I remind you again, Colossians 1.16. For by him, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created. Claire, in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether they were thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, there's no exception, all things were created through him and for him. That's why I ask the question, do you really believe that we read this, but do we pause to recognize that is all-encompassing? All things were made by him, through him, and for him. Now, certainly, we can say, I, I believe he created all things, but I don't see how that is for him. How does that showcase his glory? I said earlier well, as well that you cannot surprise God. God, everything that is happening, God has made that a part or weaved that into the fabric of his ultimate plan to showcase the glory of his son way back before the foundation of the world, way back in eternity past. The glory of Jesus Christ was planned even in Adam's sin. More about that the next time I share with you in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Even in Adam's sin. Remember, whatever God permits, he permits for a reason. And his reason is always infinitely wise and purposeful. All to display the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. He was not surprised, I tell you, when Adam sinned. Or do you believe otherwise? When Adam sinned, God had to go to plan B. Or is it that God already had a plan B? He knew. Because again, he is sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He is indeed supreme. 
Here's what it says in Revelation 13.8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain that we sang about this evening. Do you know as a believer this evening, this moment, do you know that your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth? Isn't that amazing? And who do you think was the author of the book? God. That means your name was written there before Adam's sin. Wow. What does that tell you about God? Do you see any hint of glory, any aspect of his character that you can say, wow, that you can stand in awe of? I tell you then, when Adam sinned, God was not surprised. He already had a book and had your name, my name, written in this book. So all of what Adam has done, God had took that into consideration and still come up at the end with a plan to glorify his son. He was not surprised. Second Timothy 1.9 says this, Who saved us? There's God now. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Wow. Because of our, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's why you and I were saved. God had a purpose for us. It was by his grace alone. And when did this happen? Which he gave us, it's already been done. Past tense, gave us, and he had it locked up in Christ. When did this take place? Before the ages began. When did the ages begin? After Adam? or before Adam. All of this was ours. God has already gone ahead. This just amazes me to what God has done. And the natural response would be to say, holy, 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 you know, is a lamb who was slain to receive what? Honor and glory. As I wrap up in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, we read these powerful words again. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Purpose of his will. You and I are not an afterthought. You and I are a four. God has thought about us before we were. That's how awesome God is. That's how awesome our God is. To the praise of his glorious grace, when you recognize what God has done before, your natural response should be, I just praise you. Because there's nothing that we, in and of ourselves, is deserving of such marvelous grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see Jesus showing up all over this place. 
in the beloved. Because God again wants you to magnify his son, to glorify his son. All of this taking place before the ages began, before the foundation of the world. All of this wealth of treasure is in Christ, ours to access. We are beneficiaries of all of this. And the result is to glorify his son, Jesus Christ. First, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of all the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory, of the glory. See, this is it. The gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let me read that again. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is? This is Christ. Who is? The image of God. My brothers and sisters, I am here just to remind you that everything again, everything that was created, even though it looks bleak, and definitely by any descriptor can be considered wicked, evil, detestable in all its form. Yet, God is not surprised by it. God will still have his purpose and will come to fruition. He will be glorified. And Jesus is the focus of that glory. Jesus is the ultimate purpose of life itself. Meaningfulness is the powerful vacuum behind the angst of secular society. Depression and suicide find their source in meaninglessness of life. If life as a whole has no ultimate purpose, if it means nothing, then we as individuals are nothing. And if we mean nothing, we can hardly bear to go on living. Hence, suicide. Life without meaning is a tragedy that we cannot endure. My brothers and sisters, I'm here to remind you, and I'm sure you know, but in case you run into somebody tomorrow, let them know that life has a meaning. God has a purpose for their lives. God has a will for their lives. They were created by God for a purpose. God does not waste time or resources. All things were created by him and through him and for him. God wants Jesus Christ to be exalted, to be glorified. You and I have the opportunity to participate in that by looking around and not taking our eyes off this fact that God is again sovereign. He is supreme, no higher authority, and yet he is an absolutely, in absolutely, in absolute control. There is nothing, regardless of what you hear on the news, regardless to what you see on the street, don't lose faith, don't wander. That's the enemy who may be trying to blind you so you might miss the light of the glory of the gospel. God is in control. God is supreme. We were made for Christ. 
there is no greater blessing, the kind of security, the kind of purpose, the kind of meaning. All find these three centuries in the person of Jesus Christ. I encourage you as my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord to be faithful, remain strong, remain vigilant, despite what's happening around you. Do always remember that God is supreme. See the glory. God is sovereign. See the glory. Live out the glory in the midst of the calamities, in the midst of what's seeming to be the atrocities of this life. God is supreme. God is sovereign. See his glory. Amen? Our Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the one whom you said that you are well pleased with, your beloved Son. Lord, we thank you for your word today. You have, through Scripture, multiple references of your intent to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. Cause us never to lose sight of this truth, but not only to have this truth held intellectually, but cause us to live this out day in and day out as we move about our, our lives and carry out our responsibilities. Cause us not to yield to these circumstances, but to trust in you, the God who is above all circumstances, the God who is indeed sovereign, the one who is supreme. Cause this to happen, Lord, so that they might see, not us, but that they might see Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all honor and all glory. And all of God's children says, Amen.